<laughs> Addie uh, agreed to do this about five minutes before service started, so another round of applause for her for being brave and amazing. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I am a pastor here at Zao. I'm going to grab some light so that I can see what I'm talking about. We are in the middle of a series called Sunday School Horror Stories. So just a show of hands, so I know for context, how many people had like flashbacks of VeggieTales when we were singing that previous song? All right, so a, a, a decent chunk of us. For those who were not subject to that particular childhood experience, VeggieTales is um, a kid's program where um, animated vegetables recreate uh, biblical stories. And it's actually one of, the, one of the indicators for me of like, what are these stories that we tell kids that are prominent enough that we need to kind of unpack them? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, is, is not a, a super prominent story. It's a little bit more obscure, but it's prominent enough that it made the cut for VeggieTales and actually became one of VeggieTales' better known, um, better known episodes because of that bunny song, which was a little too catchy because the, the lyrics include things like, I don't love my mom or my dad, just the bunny. Um, and it's about idol worship. And so kids started singing that song <laughs> a lot. It's, it's, you know, that, that little chorus just gets stuck in your head. They actually had to come out with the new Bunny song with revised lyrics that they put on the soundtrack so that kids could sing that one because they didn't want people singing, I don't want to play on a day that is sunny, I just want to play it in a fork and a bunny. <laughs> so in case the Bunny reference doesn't make any sense, because why would it? The story in VeggieTales um, is that there is a chocolate factory, and Mr. Nezer, which is easier to pronounce than Nebuchadnezzar, Mr. Nezer um, is the CEO of this chocolate factory, and these three kids, Rack, Shack, and Benny, again, much easier for our little American uh, brains to calculate, um, Rack, Shack, and Benny go and work at this chocolate factory. And in the midst of their working at this factory, Mr. Nezer goes mad with bunny power, um, this chocolate bunny power, constructs a huge bunny and commands that all of the factory workers will worship the bunny. They're supposed to sing the bunny song to the bunny and basically denounce everything else in their life they care about and worship this chocolate bunny. And so Rakshak and Benny, these faithful boys, um, think like, that sounds like a terrible idea. Um, we're not going to do that. A chase scene ensues, and then they're all thrown into a furnace to die. Happy Saturday morning cartoons, everyone! Um, in the end, they are saved uh, because they don't burn, even though they're in the furnace. Uh, Mr. Nezer sees that there's a fourth figure in there. They tumble out. Mr. Nezer says, you must have been saved by God. And Rakshak and Benny say, we forgive you for trying to murder us. The VeggieTales story actually has a, a big peer pressure spin on it, um, which isn't bad. It's, it's kind of the low-key version of the themes that we'll unpack. There are a couple of different ways to interpret this story, and some that are more popular than others. And actually, as far as interpretations go, peer pressure and trying to maintain one's sense of self is a pretty decent one. Um, though I think that there are other themes that we need to unpack. 
Has anybody else encountered this story in some form or another? We've done this a little bit throughout this sermon series. I want folks to shout out any lessons that you take away from it. Is there anything that you associate with this story? If you don't listen to your boss, he'll murder you. Maybe. He'll try. Anything else? God tests your faith. And what are we supposed to do in that faith, or in that test? What's that? Stay true to God, and God will protect you. You will come out of the flames, A-OK, right? And so there is this kind of theme of bad things are going to happen to you, but just so long as you stay faithful to God, God will miraculously save you. Do we see any potential problems with that being the major interpretation of this story? Have any of us ever experienced faithfulness not panning out so well for people who are threatened with violence and death? Yeah, so the Israelites too. So that can't be the primary interpretation of this story, that faithfulness to God in situations of peril equals uh, safety and and well-being. So there's got to be more to it, right? This book or this story comes to us from the book of Daniel. Daniel, which also tells just three chapters later the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Very similar themes where Daniel is thrown into a den of lions and God shuts the lion's mouths and he is saved. But Daniel is kind of a weird book. It's something called apocalyptic literature. That's a genre that we don't have um, in modern writing. Apocalyptic literature has been defined as an unveiling or unfolding of things not previously known and which could not be known apart from the unveiling. Now, if that caught you up, I'm going to read it again. An unveiling or unfolding of things not previously known and which could not be known apart from the unveiling. This is a sort of secret truth which is being uncovered, which is being laid bare. It is a kind of prophecy, but not the kind that we like to think about when we think about apocalyptic literature, which is, oh, someday these things are exactly going to come to pass. This is a tool of the oppressed, a way of storytelling for people in the underground, people who have been pushed down by the empire, people who are saying, we need to find the truth hidden underneath this because the the truth that appears to be is unbearable. So what is that truth? that has yet to be uncovered, that must be uncovered by the truth of God. Apocalyptic literature is designed to square the righteousness of God with the suffering and and the conditions of evil that the righteous servants on earth endure. Because the Israelites actually did experience a lot of oppression that no amount of righteousness could combat. A lot of the earliest writings of the Hebrew scriptures are about righteousness, and they say, hey, if you do this right, things will turn out well for you. If you obey God, things will be okay. And then people obeyed God, or they didn't, and things were not okay. And so they said, okay, round two, 
what is the truth underneath this that we have to understand? Because this idea that our faithfulness will always result in our well-being isn't panning out for us, but we trust in the goodness of God, and so there must be something else going on here, more than what meets the eye, because the rulers in power are always claiming that God is on their side, and we know that that can't be the case. So what is really happening here? So this, this genre, this apocalyptic writing talks about things at a broad scale, the cosmos. It's a cosmology with an end in mind that says things are the way they are in this moment, but that is not all there is, and it's certainly not all there is to come. The righteous will one day rule and be in charge, and those people in power will do so with justice and love, either on earth or in some sort of new creation. But the promises of God are not bereft, and the promises of the world are. They are empty, and we can't forget that. But the really difficult part about apocalyptic literature is that it makes very clear that in this process, in this story, in this unfolding of all things throughout history and time, in all of creation, we as individuals absolutely get caught up in it, swept up in it, martyred by it even that individual people might suffer and die in the fallenness and brokenness of the world, but that we would still be a part of the unfolding of the cosmos, and especially in later Christian writings, later Christian apocalyptic writings, that we would be a part of a new creation that is coming, no matter what happens to us now. It is the promise that death is not the end. It is the same promise that is woven throughout our entire tradition, that the death that appears now to overtake us actually doesn't have the power it claims. So some prophets in the Hebrew scriptures spoke to those institutions of power and said, get your act together. We need liberation now. Evil will continue to to reign and terrible things will happen as you continue to hurt one another with your abuses of power. But the apocalyptic authors, they were speaking to those who were getting crushed. Your faithfulness still has value, they said. And we will tell it to you in riddles and secrets and weird mystical imagery and there will be beasts with several heads and eyes. And it'll be weird. But underneath all of that is a deeper truth that you are not alone and that the powers of the world that claim they are invincible will fall. So that's the genre of this story. Daniel, the whole book, is this way. It's a mixture of stories and interpretations of dreams that are wild and fantastical. But the way this story begins is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has fallen. Jerusalem is the city, the place where God lives and reigns. Jerusalem has fallen to Babylon. So we've already got a problem. The city that God loves, the people that God has chosen, are under occupation by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar um, wants to recruit the best and brightest and most highly classed from uh, Israel into Babylon. And so he has folks handpick these young, royal, or noble, handsome, for some reason, um, young people to be brought in to serve as counsel. Now, this this little note, just that these people were young, so they were likely children when they were abducted from their home community, that is why we tell it to kids. 
I've talked before about how the choices we make about what stories we tell the kids often have to do with just random occurrences of animals or other children. That's why we tell this particular story to kids is because it starts with kids getting abducted from their homeland. Maybe not good criteria. <laughs> so these kids get abducted from their homeland and among them are Daniel, the main protagonist of this book, and his, his companions who are later named um, in their Babylonian names as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they become sages, counselors, wise men, and, and immediately they're faced with the, the evils of colonization. They, it is demanded that they eat in the way that the Babylonians eat, with um, food sacrificed to gods that are not their own. And Israel had its boundaries and identity really firmly in place, and a big part of that was food. And so, Daniel and his companions refuse to eat as the Babylonians eat. They say, no, we're going to maintain our cultural identity. We're going to maintain our faithfulness. We are not going to engage in this with you. And they're threatened immediately with death. They say, give us, give us a trial. Let us do this for a little while. We're just going to eat water and vegetables. It's going to be great. First vegans. <laughs> and so they follow, this, um, they follow this diet. And then when they are tested, um, expected to be malnourished, Nebuchadnezzar declares them 10 times better than all the wise men in his court. And so they're rewarded. So first thing that happens is they maintain their cultural identity and they're rewarded by the court. When they do this, King Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, your God must be a good God. And not good like gracious and lovely, good as in powerful. So we're going to honor your God. So now, all of a sudden, it's kind of in to be with the Israelite God. And here's where we get the first messages about idolatry. In the VeggieTales version, um, the factory workers are allowed to gorge on chocolate for 30 minutes. They're just allowed to eat whatever they want in the factory for 30 minutes, and Rackshack and Benny are like, we know better. Vegetables make us feel good. We're going to abstain from this and remember what our mom taught us. And they sing a song about it. It's very charming. And so it's talking about peer pressure and boundaries and limits. What happens when we engage in the pressures of indulgence around us? And that's a good lesson. But is there a bigger lesson for bigger kids? It's easy to go into idolatry as the worship of excess, money, power, beauty. And those things absolutely are toxic, but we tend to talk about them in an individual level. And that's not actually what we see playing out for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Babylon. The kind of idolatry here is communal. It's societal. The idolatry here is imperialism, worship of empire and emperor. And so as we're unpacking this, I want you to hold in your spirit that idolatry as we're talking about it here is a little bit more than gorging on candy that we know we shouldn't. Idolatry here is the social pressures to make meaning outside of the truth of God's love and justice. And in particular this morning, because in particular we are here, in this city, in this country, in this time, I want you to hold in your spirit the idolatry of our empire, which has its most potent form right now in white supremacy. Idolatry is not just wanting those things that are not God. Idolatry is putting your trust in power which is ultimately evil and bereft. 
It's putting your trust in an empty idol of gold that, it, that is called on to induce violence on people rather than the trust in the goodness of God. And so here, I want you to hold that. What if this isn't about chocolate and eating that instead of your vegetables? What if this is about bowing down to white supremacy and colonialism and evil? Back in the story, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he's an angry and fickle and jealous person. And so he doesn't want to tell his wise men about his dream. He wants it interpreted for him. But he says, if you're really wise, you'll tell me what the dream was about. I don't got to tell you anything. You're going to know about it. And everyone's like, dude, we can't. What, what are you talking about? So he's like, I'm going to kill you all. Daniel gets an explanation from God, sort of in the nick of time. These are the symbols of your dream. I know exactly what they are. Here's what they mean. Your kingdom is going to fall, and God's will, God's kingdom will take its place. Nebuchadnezzar is floored by this display of magic. And so says again, your God must be a powerful God. I'm going to put you and your friends more in charge. And we're going we're gonna to make sure nobody gets in your way as you worship your God. And here we see this pattern of empire rewarding the faithful. They're getting good results from their faith in God, good results for the emperor and for the empire. So, so far, this story is going great, right? Just like stick it out with God, and the bad people will realize that you're awesome and that they should probably be on your side. The king has recognized that they're strong because of their faith and their unwillingness to engage in imperial power, and he wants to co-opt that. He says, that strength is appealing, and I want it. They are useful here. And so the empire protects them so long as they are useful. Maybe Ned learned his lesson. You know, he promoted them and protected him. But do we ever see that play out? Have you ever seen counterculture suddenly be um, amplified by a mainstream culture, rewarded? How much cultural capital do you get from being into social justice these days? How many... How many rainbow-themed uh, products do you see for sale in June every year now as queer people and trans people are still getting killed in the streets? Did anybody see Black Panther? We were super into Black Panther and Black Liberation when it was like on the big screen. And you know what? It goes beyond pop culture. I've heard more James Baldwin quotes in the last five years than in my entire life. And that guy died the year I was born. So the only explanation is that suddenly it's cool at some level to push back against white supremacy and colonialism and evil and injustice. But this stuff, it's skin deep. And that's not to say there isn't value in it. I want more Black Panther. I want everyone to want to be in with the queers. I want Teen Vogue to be awesome. Have you seen Teen Vogue lately, guys? It's amazing, and this is not to undercut the work of those who are on the forefront of making justice relevant. But this is to say that the empire is not loyal to them. The empire is protecting them for a second because it's cool, for a second because it's profitable, for a second because it seems to give them more power, and that protection will fall. Meanwhile, in Rack, Shack, and Benny, 
King Nebuchadnezzar is like, I built a golden idol. I have forgotten everything from the previous verses. And I have an idol now. I know who the real God is. It's me and my object I made. So if everyone could bow down and forget everything, every loyalty, every value they have outside of their loyalty to me, that would be great. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't do that. And word gets back to the king. And the king's like, you're not going to do this? They say, listen, God will be with us. And if God doesn't save us, we're still not worshiping you. And that's the part that gets missed here pretty quickly. I'm going to read you the exact text. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Part of this is their willingness to say, hey, we get that we might die. It actually seems pretty likely that we're going to die. Their faithfulness is not a trust in God saving them. Their faithfulness is in something else. King Nebuchadnezzar gets so pissed that he turns the furnace up to seven times the normal heat. His anger boils over. He doesn't just want to kill them. He wants to obliterate them. It's so much that when he ties them up and has his servants throw them into the furnace, the servants burst into flames. These are additional clues that this story is hyperbole, is not meant to be taken literally. And also, it's an indication of where King Nebuchadnezzar is at, what it means to engage in violence seven times the, the standard violence of empire. So in the fire, he sees them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now they're unbound. And actually there's a fourth person with them that Nebuchadnezzar says looks like a god with them in the fire, walking around. It's Nebuchadnezzar who ends up relenting and saying, come out, what is going on? Because he can't go in after them. He would burst into flames. So he lets them out, and out comes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're totally fine. They went in with clothing. They came out with clothing. They went in with hair. They came out with hair. And if you've ever burnt hair, you know that that smells awful. One of the things the text notes is they smell great. (laughs) Not a singed hair on their head. King Nebuchadnezzar blesses them and decrees that no one should be able to stop them from worshiping their god. Neb's back on their side. Woo! How long do you think we can count on that? So what is the message here? Common interpretation would have us believe that this is about the conduct of the faithful, what it means to walk into the fiery furnace trusting in God and knowing that God will save us. Just remain steadfast, and it's cool, guys. God will make a miracle happen. Right? Okay? Okay, okay, it's going to be fine. But what's the problem here? The faithful are getting slaughtered, is the problem. 
This can't be what it means, because even at the time it was told, it was told to people who were being crushed and killed and tortured and oppressed. And the interpretation here is not that each one of those tortured victims just didn't have enough faith. That is not the truth of a loving God. That is not the aim of apocalyptic literature. So if that is absolutely not the interpretation, if we reject the hypothesis that the truly faithful will be saved while anyone suffering is actually just suffering from a lack of faith, if we refuse to reduce it to that toxic, toxic space, what are we left with? One commentator wrote, the result here is less a testimony of God's fidelity and more a didactic tale about how to get good results. Be faithful and God will protect you with an implied threat that the opposite will be the case if you are not faithful. By the end of the book, Daniel, uh, by the end of the book of Daniel, it is clear that not all the faithful are spared from death. Our handling of Daniel 3 should not be in isolation from that end of that book. Daniel 3 does not commend a transactional relationship, a manual on how to survive in tough times. Rather, Daniel 3 is a direct attack on the presumption of rulers who challenge or seek to displace the rule of God. This story isn't about Rakshak and Benny. And although this commentator suggests that it's a story primarily about God, and at, every, at some level every story in scripture is a story about God and the goodness of God, I'd like to suggest that it is actually largely a story about Nebuchadnezzar and those who follow him. Nebuchadnezzar is a leader of this earth. He is fickle and violent and powerful. He, he dominates he commands, he erases culture and imposes himself and worship of himself. Following him doesn't even work for people because he's so fickle. You can do what he says one minute and you'll be in trouble for it the next. And yet, there are people falling for it hook, line, and sinker. People who want power, people who want safety, people who are just trying to get along. When Nebuchadnezzar says, prosperity will come to you if you bow down to my idol, People are falling all over themselves to serve him. When tyrants all over the world say, I am empire and do as I say, no one questions for a moment. And when the president of this country shouts at a rally about the invasion of Texas by Hispanics, someone buys an assault rifle, drives across the state of Texas, and opens fire in an El Paso Walmart, killing 22 adults and children. This story is a scathing critique of the narratives of power, the evils of kings and rulers who violate people's culture, love, autonomy, and safety. Rulers who, out of their own greed and jealousy and terror, incite violence, obscene violence, seven times what violence would be in order to keep their power. This story lays bare the evil of such so-called authority and says this is not of God. And those who fall in with it are leaving God, are leaving true power, are leaving the promise of the Lord. So what about the faithful? As the commentator reminds us, not all the faithful are spared from death. Those 22 are still dead along with the three from the garlic festival. 
and the six in Dayton, and all those who have died in ICE custody, and all those dead at the hands of the police, and on and on and on. So what promise is there in the apocalypse? The promise is that in the depths of those fires, as those fires are licking at our body, even to the point of death, we are the unbound ones, and God is with us. Death does not have the final answer. The promise is that those rulers have already succumbed to death, and that we find freedom in the face of death through the liberation of ourselves and one another, not only on this earth but beyond. And I am not talking about heaven. I am not talking about suffering that is rewarded on some cloud, cloudy sky and, and streets of gold. I am talking about new creation, where God breaks into this world, where God stands with the suffering, where God keeps intact the wholeness and humanness of people who are so, so tempted to throw it away for a modicum of safety or an ounce of power. The promise of the apocalypse is that, yes, all seems lost. And you know what? Most of it is, but not all of it. That when we are at the absolute depths, God is not up there with the rulers putting fire into the furnace. God is down there in the furnace with us. And though it looks like we may be the ones burning, we are intact This protection, it's from the evils of empire. Not the power of empire to destroy our bodies, but the power of empire to destroy our souls. To draw us in to their narrative of evil. To draw us in to their domination. Our faithfulness protects us from selling ourselves out to that falsehood. And it might get ugly, because that power is ugly and evil. But the promise is that it is better to die in the flames than to be putting fuel on the fire. And the overarching promise of apocalyptic literature, the unveiling, the uncovering, is that this is not the end. That the story never ends until fullness of life is achieved, until we all arrive together in new creation. And everyone who has suffered at the hands of power, everyone who has had their neck crushed beneath a boot, everyone who has been dominated by white supremacy and colonialism and misogyny and every form of evil has a part in new creation. That it is not over and it will not be over until all is made new. What does that mean for those of us who don't participate in mass shootings? What does that mean for those of us who are sitting watching the nightly news or seeing the news on Facebook? There are different choices that we can make here about how to align ourselves with the liberation and promise of God or with the promise of evil and white supremacy and empire. And those those choices are not easy. And I don't want to give you that impression. Reading this story and talking to a lot of folks about the violence in our country this week, I was reminded of somebody that I care about dearly. His name is Matt. He's from Chicago. He's Mexican, and he grew up in a predominantly Mexican neighborhood where the cops functioned like another gang. A lot of people were gang-affiliated in that neighborhood. 
And the cops were incredibly violent and repressive in trying to control the situation. The cops were a part of a white supremacist uh, project in the Chicago Police Department at that time in that neighborhood that was trying to control Mexican neighborhoods. And Matt was thinking about becoming a cop. Now, Matt wanted to help people just as much as anybody else. But when I really pressed him about why he wanted to become a cop, he said, because if I'm one of them, they'll protect me instead of hurt me. He said, everyone in my family, all the men in my family are either one of the cops or they're in jail. And I'd rather be a part of the cops. Now, I'm thankful that Matt didn't decide to go that route. But that's the temptation in his heart, to join the thing of power, to give him some sense of safety. It's not an easy choice. He wanted to be safe. He wanted to live. He wanted to be able to walk his neighborhood with confidence. I'm glad that he chose against power and against that particular gang. What is the choice for you? What are the subtle ways that empire calls out to you, that white supremacy calls out to you, that misogyny and patriarchy call out to you just to protect yourself a little bit in this world of chaos and violence? I can promise you that you will be better off without it, without empire, even when it comes to punish you. When I'm feeling really down or panicked or stressed, I got in a habit of calling my mom. And she didn't know what to say to me all the time, so we decided together on a script. Here's the script. I love you. You're awesome. It's going to be okay. Now, there are variations on that. But I think the theological weight of that little pep talk, the fact that we are loved, the fact that God is with us, that God sees us, that God made us awesome, that our inherent self is goodness, that doesn't mean that everything is going to be okay. That means that everything is okay. That as we are in the midst of tumult and chaos, as the tornado comes for us, as we are being thrown into the furnace, it is well. Not because the furnace will collapse or because every time God will walk among and protect us in some miraculous way, but because the miracle there is that it is well with our soul when we cling to what is good, when we reject evil. It is a difficult path but it is the one that protects us and that brings us closer to wholeness. And it is the way that we can, with God, in the midst of empire, look ahead to that new creation. When it is well, it is well, it is well. Will you pray with me? God of the universe, God of all creation, we praise you for your view of things. The truth that you can see from a distance, the power that you have to understand that all these things shall pass. God, in the midst of chaos and violence, give us the strength and fortitude to be who you have created us to be, to be good and very good, 
to cling to you, to what is good, and to reject evil in every sneaky form, even when it pretends to protect us. God, make us bold servants of your love, of your truth, and be with us through the flames into new creation. Amen.